and welcome to The Guidepost, a new podcast from the William Winter Institute. I'm Jake McGraw. But we know there are implications to losing population in terms of tax base, infrastructure, the ability to support local businesses. And, and uh, Our guest today is Dr. Travel. John Green, professor of sociology at the University of Mississippi and the director of the Center for Population Studies. John also serves as the vice chair of Mississippi's Complete Count Committee, which is spearheading the campaign to ensure that every Mississippian is counted in this year's census. John is a self-described data nerd who believes in putting that data to use where it's most valuable, on the ground, in the hands of people who are working to improve the quality of life that their communities offer. I wanted John to help us kick off this podcast because he's one of the foremost experts on two important issues that touch many of the communities that we at the Winter Institute work with. The first issue is Mississippi's declining population, which has been driven by an outflow of people who moved to other states and also comparatively few people who are moving to Mississippi from elsewhere. It's what's commonly referred to as the brain drain. Our second issue really undergirds the first, and that is the census itself, the source of a lot of that data. The census is going to determine not just the quality of data that we have available to analyze these problems, but also the share of political representation and public funding that our communities and our state will receive for the next decade. In order to give each of these topics its due, we have split the conversation into two parts. In this episode, we're going to delve into Mississippi's struggle to retain and attract people who have the option of living elsewhere. In recent years, we've seen Mississippi's population shrink despite its location in the middle of the fastest growing region of the country. Since 2010, we've seen 61,000 more people leave the state than move in. If you put them together, they would make Mississippi's third largest city. And to put it plainly, Mississippians are not having babies fast enough to replace everybody who's leaving, which means that our state has lost total population. That's the number of people who are working in the state, people who are paying taxes. We've lost total population in four of the last five years. I began the conversation with John by asking what stands out to him when he looks at Mississippi's population data. Well, I think as a, as a starting place, just like you mentioned, that we have to look at Mississippi in the context of, of this region, of the southern region, and what are the patterns that we see here. And as, as the south is the fastest growing region uh, in the country, uh, that this is a, an important topic uh, for us because, A, we're not growing as quick quickly, and given the, uh, the issues of out-migration, as a part of that population change being a really central factor uh, to think to think through. Uh, you know, as a, as a starting place, I think it's really important to think about how populations change numerically really along three different lines, right, in terms of births, uh, deaths, and then migration. And so when we look at the population numbers of a particular place and time and how those, how those change over time, we have to look at the balance between those. So we might have some places that look like they're, they're not changing. Uh, may, we may assume that the population numbers are, are steady, but then when we look at, well, in some places they may have high out-migration, but at the same time they have high fertility. Or another place has uh, you know, higher mortality. And, uh, and so trying to understand the interplay of those and, and how those factor out in terms of the actual population is, is so central because that has an impact on, on what we might do. What are, what are the goals? What are the social goals in terms of, uh, you know, what we strive towards? For Mississippi, 
we've got a few things happening. We have continued uh, higher uh, fertility rates that, uh, that kind of mask some of the population loss that we've seen with out-migration. So we have higher fertility uh, than mortality, and so we call that natural increase. But we have high levels of out-migration. And interestingly, that's domestic out-migration, um, that uh, we have uh, positive overall international net migration, so more international folks coming in than are leaving, but domestically we have more people leaving than are coming in. And, uh, and as you say, that that, that, that pattern uh, is, is something that we've been experiencing for, for some time. As fertility rates drop, and in you know, most, most places as they uh, develop economically, as they have better health systems, as you know, all those things we think of as, as a part of modern society, as, as those uh, parts to our communities get better, uh, we also see fertility rates uh, tend to drop. And, uh, and so that's when we start to see the, the population loss um, be more apparent. And, uh, and so while we've been experiencing out-migration for quite some time, we're starting to see that in the overall population uh, numbers, uh, you know, vastly different than what we see with, uh, with uh, Tennessee, for sure. You know, it's growing very quickly uh, and certainly different from Alabama and Arkansas. So I see that for the state as a whole, out-migration should be a major, uh, a major concern. And at the same time, we have to recognize when we look below the state level, that, uh, that there's a lot of variation, say, regionally. Uh, if we look at county level, we see uh, a lot of variation, different hot spots in the state, some places that are, that are growing uh, dramatically, places that are losing uh, population pretty dramatically due to out-migration. And so I think when we are focusing attention on these patterns, it's really important to then delve down below the state level to really understand and, 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 you know, say why is this part of the state uh, losing people, why is this part of the state gaining people, and, uh, you know, and try to think through the, the policies, the community development initiatives, the role of education, uh, quality of education, all those things that play into that. When we see these net out-migration data from Mississippi, what do we know, what do you know from your research about exactly who that is, who is, you know, what types of people are more likely to leave, and, and I guess uh, the other side of that coin is, is who is least likely to want to move into Mississippi? The current population survey that's done annually is a good source for trying to understand some of those factors, as well as the research that individual scholars and groups of scholars are doing. When we mix all of that research together, I, I would say a few of the broad stroke things that we know that have an impact on, on Mississippi is that younger adults and, and the more highly educated among them are the most likely to leave. We think that, uh, you know, as people are older, especially if they have ties to Mississippi, are more likely to come uh, in than, than people who are younger. We know that uh, homeowners are less likely to move out of a place. It's a national phenomenon, and it makes sense <laughs> that by being a homeowner, you're, you're more tied. 
but I think that's important given, you know, that, that communities and, and the state can do things to, to, uh, to help homeowners. It's a good policy. Uh, we know that people with children make decisions about where to live, largely influenced by perceptions of the quality of schools. And so that's not just, you know, say migration, out-migration from a particular city or county or state, but even kind of internally within a locale, you know, what we consider movers uh, rather than migrants, that that, that influences it. And then, uh, and then also jobs, as, as we've discussed, is that, you know, pursuing better employment opportunities. The other thing that, that we talk about the uh, factors that kind of push people out of a place besides, you know, limited job opportunities, it's also important to think of disaster and, and that kind of vulnerability has an impact. And for any of our coastal states, that matters. It impacts Mississippi and Louisiana, uh, Alabama. And, and, uh, and so those are the factors that I think that we have the kind of broadest understanding of. Where I think we don't have enough research is how does, how does image and symbols and, you know, kind of how we think about our communities or th- how we think about our state, how does that have an impact? I think it does have an impact for Mississippi. We just don't have enough research to really understand it. Because as you said, if you, if you just take the, the aggregate population figures, Mississippi looks like it's pretty stagnant. Total population has not changed much year over year. But within the state, you've seen communities, cities, counties, regions of the state, both losing drastic amounts of population and other areas gaining it. And so you, you have seen shifts in the distribution of where people live in Mississippi. Could you talk a little bit about that and what you've seen? Yeah, it's interesting. Through our center, one of the roles that we play is helping to fill data requests and, uh, you know, people contacting us to, you know, understand what is the population of their communities, however defined, what have been the trends, what are the characteristics of those places. But increasingly, we spend a lot of time helping people to, to use those data, think about them, analyze them, you know, sort out the implications. So, you know, a few things that I would emphasize is that we have areas like around our more urbanized areas, so like uh, North Mississippi, DeSoto County, that region of the state, around Tupelo, places on the Gulf Coast, that have been maintaining pretty steady uh, population increases. And then we have other pockets, many of the counties in the Delta, as an example. There are some places in East Mississippi and so forth where we've seen the, uh, the pretty steady patterns of, of out-migration and population loss with that. It's interesting, in, in Mississippi, the, the last estimates that we looked at at the county level, Lafayette County was the uh, fastest increasing percentage-wise, and Quitman County was the fastest decreasing in population percentage-wise. And I think that's really important because they're only separated by one county. Mm-hmm. Just vast, vast differences of experiences and what the implications are. And I, I think that that really helps tell that story of how much variation that there is. Those places that have had persistent, what, what we would call shrinkage of population, I think it is really important to, to try to understand what are the dynamics 
for those places. It's, you know, it's not to say that there's something inherently good or bad or positive or negative about losing or gaining population. I think that, as I, as I said earlier, that should be part of a social discussion of, you know, what kind of communities we want to live in. But we know there are implications to losing population in terms of tax base, infrastructure, the ability to support local businesses and, and uh, the ability to attract people. And so when we see that persistent loss uh, over many years, that's where I think we really need to give uh, attention. And of course, places that are growing fast, they face all kinds of challenges as well. We certainly experience that in places like Lafayette County or places like DeSoto County. You know, how do you make sure that your infrastructure can keep up with those needs? But there's this uh, kind of downward cycle that, that places can get trapped into, and I think we just have to really focus more attention on those. Yeah, let's let's uh, spend some time talking about that, what that cycle looks like. Um, and I think that it, it's important to make the, dis- the distinction that you did, which is that, you know, population shifts, they're always going to be problems, challenges uh, associated with any type of, of population sh- shift. In a, you know, it's a, it's a dynamic thing. And, and so places that are growing will experience growing pains. And it has reached an extreme form in a lot of places, especially if, you know, as we consume national news and commentary, which is often generated out of places like New York and Washington and the Bay Area, in which you are seeing really deep tensions that have been brought to the surface by rapid population influxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of national conversation that takes place around issues of gentrification and displacement and neighborhood change and housing affordability. Population gain is not costless. In fact, it does have some pretty great costs associated with it for many for many people. I think that the downward spiral that you talk about is is equally or even more pernicious because what it often does is take resources out of communities where they're really often needed the most and it provides it just kind of provides fewer resources to be able to apply toward solutions. And so examples of that sort of as you alluded to are a shrinking tax base that mm-hmm. can't put money back into schools and can't maintain its roads and infrastructure. Uh, you can see, see extreme examples of that in places like Flint, Michigan, but locally here in Jackson, um, you can really see the effect of, of having lost 40,000 people over the last 40 years and maintaining the same amount of roadway and, and water infrastructure. And right. it just really it creates a mathematical challenge. Businesses have fewer customers. They have fewer employees to pull from. Houses lose value which decreases your, your family wealth and reduces your access to credit. And so you can see all of these, these problems. And, and collectively, your community and your state is, are really left with, with fewer resources to be able to apply to solving some of those problems, at least in a place that is adding population. It's also adding the capacity, if the will exists, to solve some of those problems. Uh, and yet here, can, it can feel like the opposite. And so in your experience, sort of what have you seen um, in some of these places that have gotten into that cycle of, of persistent population loss and out-migration? You know, when we look at the factors that are associated with population loss, and specifically the population loss related to out-migration in which we're speaking, big issues like economic restructuring that, you know, have changed what the economic system, the 
labor markets, et cetera, in places like Mississippi look like, and certainly not just in this part of the South, but across the Midwest, where there's a lot of similarities in what that economic restructuring looks like, those can seem like overwhelming factors of how at a community level or in a county or within a state can we address those issues. I think it's interesting when you look at the research about why people move to understand those factors, why people who've moved have, and and then also what people's aspirations are, where they see themselves going. In, in uh, demography, we talk about the push-pull factors um, between places for people. We don't have good research on this within Mississippi, but nationally, we know that, for example, in the past year, of people who moved, which was less than 10% who had moved in that year, only about 20% of it was due to job change. So you think about that. There's about 80% of the factors going into people making these decisions is still open. It's still other things. And to me, that is uh, almost liberating to think about from a community development standpoint, because it shows that there's a lot of other things that, that we can do. And of course, we have to remember for those 20% of people who, uh, who are moving because of job-related factors, it could be for good reasons, great, great opportunities. You know, so it's not all negative uh, from, from that perspective. But if you think about like social conditions, you think about housing or the, the quality of schools, that those are things that communities can actually have an impact upon. There has to be the will to do that. There has to be some collective action uh, to achieve those things. But it's, it's something that can change. And, and that's where I think we have to give a lot of attention. I've, I've worked on some projects over the course of many years focused on these issues around the healthcare workforce in the Delta. Started off with a focus on nursing and people who are coming into nursing and where are they going to practice, where do they want to live, where do they want to work. But it's very interesting, especially if you just take nursing as your example, there's a competitive labor market and opportunities for nurses. We have a nursing shortage, right? You can get good jobs in nursing. And so it opens up an opportunity for us to, to explore what are the other factors, the quality of schools for their children, making such a huge difference about where they wanted to live and work, especially when we think about families that are uh, first-generation college students, you know, and then, and then they say, well, for my own children, I want them to have a better experience than I had. You think about the opportunities for kind of social engagement, things to do within the community, the importance of uh, feeling like you live in a, in a tolerant, accepting community, no matter what your beliefs are, that people like to live in those kinds of places. It's interesting, even, for example, students that, uh, and recent graduates that may not identify with a, a particular way of life or particular uh, beliefs still want to live in communities where, where it is open, you know, and they have that sense of, uh, of freedom because those are good places to live. And so I think all of those factors that are, are kind of more aligned to our social experience are things that communities can change. Now a lot of the a lot of the research is focusing on the concepts of resilience, community well-being, quality of life. Certainly all of these issues of like infrastructure matter as a part of that, but so do these the social relationships uh, within a community. 
have a, a, a colleague in, in the field of rural sociology, which is my specialization, uh, who's been doing work on this in, in uh, Iowa, David Peters, and, uh, and other colleagues. But they've been looking at how to build resilience in shrinking uh, areas, shrinking in terms of population change. You know, so, so if, we, if we accept that some places are going to shrink, and certainly we have seen this as we've been talking about, how do, how do we understand those places that still maintain a good quality of life? And, and so, you know, I think there are uh, examples to that that we can point to. I mentioned Quitman County earlier as being one of the places with the, with the kind of most rapid population change. There's a collective action in Quitman County as we speak with the organizations and efforts like the Marks Project, where they've said, you know what, we're going to come together as a community. We're going to take on issues that affect our quality of life. And, uh, and so you're starting to, to see that. You can see it in the different organizations and business activities. You can sense it when you go to community meetings, how the tenor of the discussions have changed. You can see it in the responsibility that, that people are taking to change things within, within their own areas. I went to the, this summer in Quitman County to Lambert Day and got to, uh, got to meet all the people running for office. I was there to talk about the census, but to, uh, to learn about the issues that they were, were wanting to address. And, and I think everything I experienced was similar to what they're saying on, on the Iowa studies as we need to give attention to create opportunities for leadership of uh, younger people, uh, support innovation, even sometimes when we may disagree with with what's happening, say, well, let's create the opportunities for people to try new things and try to be uh, innovative, to engage people in a civic life, you know, to have a stronger uh, nonprofit sector within our communities. All of those, I think, are, are practices that people can do to make the quality of life better in a community. And, and that makes it then attractive to, to places. I do a lot of work in Clarksdale. I think we've, we've we're seeing that in, in places like Clarksdale. Sure, a lot of the same challenges are there in terms of economic restructuring, changes in agriculture, you know, the persistent challenges of race relations. But nonetheless, you're seeing new local businesses spring up. You're seeing all of those types of efforts. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Guidepost from the William Winter Institute. We'd love it if you could subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And also check us out online at www.winterinstitute.org podcast. Now back to the conversation with Dr. John Green. I'll point to one other um, piece of research. I was in, involved with a, uh, an effort that we call the State of the South. It was really focused on uh, sustainable agriculture systems in the southern U.S. and led by a, a colleague in Arkansas, Jim Warstel. And what we were trying to do was to engage with uh, people in local food systems about what they thought made a, a local food system resilient. And then we tried to take that input and match it up with indicators that we could compare between places. We focused on the, on the South and developed all kinds of indicators of what we call a resilient local food system. And then we looked at how is that connected to other kind of quality of life. So for example, we looked at aggregate data on self-rated health and premature mortality, these sort of things. And an interesting phenomenon, we found that, for example, our uh, measure of local resilient food systems was a more powerful predictor of health outcomes than was the indicator of whether or not you live in a food desert, whether or not there's 
you know, for example, local grocery stores or supermarkets or super centers that is a concern for so many rural communities as, as, as we've seen those changes. And I think the reason why this, this idea of a, of a local resilient food system was so powerful is because it, the indicators demonstrated local action. So as we started to kind of pull apart the data, we saw that places, uh, counties that had farmers markets, that had on-farm sales, that had local farm-to-school programs, right, that had those types of initiatives in their community, that they had better health outcomes. And that's controlling for poverty, controlling for inequality, controlling for whether or not it's a rural or urban place, controlling for all those factors that, that we think or we assume make a difference, that local action still makes a difference and a pretty powerful one. That's very interesting. Have you or has the research been able to identify some of the, the necessary components to creating that type of community action? You know, does it come from having strong leadership? Is it related to social bonds and social capital? Is it related to institutions? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and to start off, I would say that our knowledge in that area is underdeveloped. And we just need a call for an agenda across disciplines and, and those, those of us interested in applied kind of policy and, and development work to give more attention to those issues. But, but I think that we know some. Uh, for example, we know that having uh, local leadership that embraces these, these types of efforts, community action, collective action, is important. I think that to the extent that there's research on this, that uh, having diverse engagement across racial, ethnic, gender, class lines, whatever boundaries divide us, that the more inclusive that type of engagement is, the better, the more successful it's going to be. And then I think also, you know, paying attention not just to the social bonds and networks within the community, but how are they connected outside of the community in terms of resources that, that matter that can be used to, to benefit those local initiatives. That it's, you know, not just having strong bonds, say, horizontally with people who are similar to us, but how are we connected to people that bring new information, new ideas, new resources? How do we help make those connections outside of the community to be beneficial? Looking at, looking at how these different forms of what we call the, the community capitals is the, is the terminology that's often used, where we have not just social capital or economic capital, but also you know, natural resources, our built environment, culture, our political system. What's the characteristics and the balance of the different types of capital that seem to be most effective? And I think understanding that it's not going to be the same in every community because we can think about some communities, for example, that, say, for example, are near the Gulf Coast, they have some natural amenities that may compensate for some other, uh, some other capitals that they may have in deficiency. Um, and so that balance is going to look different based on where you are. And so, you know, that's where I say it's kind of underdeveloped. But I think we're, uh, that researchers who are giving attention to this are starting to identify what are the factors that seem to be paramount? And then the question is, how do they interrelate? How do they uh, impact each other? I think that the way um, you set it up is important. Um, 
and it often kind of gets lost. I, I feel it myself when I talk about this, that there's almost sort of an artificial framing in which we talk about people leaving Mississippi. Uh, we talk about it, we talk about it in terms of the state. And yet when we in our own lives are making the decision about where to, where to live, we're thinking about the actual city, mm-hmm. the community where we're living, maybe even it's down to the neighborhood. And we think about, so we think about it in a much more localized way. And yet, um, I think that, that in terms of having this conversation, it, and also I think in terms of, of, I know people who have left Mississippi, they really do think about it in terms of, of leaving their state behind. There is something real to that identity right. um, and that relationship that they feel. And yet they're choosing to move not to Georgia, but to Atlanta or not to Texas, but to Dallas. Right. And so I think that, that you know, a lot of folks are, especially those in, who work in, in state policy and state government or you know, their, their inclination is to sort of ask, well, what, what can we do? You know, what, what legislation can we pass? Where can we put money to try to solve this? And I think that the points you raise are important because really, ultimately, it, it is a local issue. I mean, the people are, are going to be choosing to move to your community or not. And yet, the role of state government is still very important in trying to lay that groundwork. And so, something I think about a lot is, you know, what you know, what are the, what are the policies that, that we can adopt on a state level in order to create the potential for communities to, to build and leverage those assets that they have? I think that's a, a fundamental question that we should always be asking. You know, there's been a movement in, in public health that's called uh, uh, health in all policies to really think about what are the health implications of whatever sector of, you know, policymaking that we're focusing on. You see that same uh, kind of issue arise when we talk about environmental uh, issues. You know, what's, what are the environmental implications? I think we should be treating kind of community and economic development and what it means for population change in the same way that uh, fundamentally all of the types of decisions that happen within state government have an impact for good or for ill uh, on these issues that we've been discussing, a population change, quality of life, and well-being within a community. So I think that states have a, a major role to play in shaping that because you have to think it's, it's setting the environment, uh, the, the kind of context, the institutional context in which communities can act. And so if they're going to be able to do the things that we were uh, discussing that require collective action, they need the uh, space you know, uh, to be able to do that. They need the resources to be able to pursue those things. I'll give you a a great example uh, that I think was a real success for Mississippi is that when we talk about uh, the the value of, uh, you know, active, engaged local food systems and the things that now we can take for granted of like vibrant farmer's markets. Farmer's markets are the outcome of collective action but we used to have policies in place that made it really hard to effectively and, and legally keep a farmer's market going in terms of issues related around uh, sales taxes and so forth, but also what could be sold. And so when the state, uh, with, with the input of a lot of different actors saying this needs to change, when we uh, ha- now have our cottage industry law, 
that allows for people to make products in their home and sell them at a farmer's market had a fundamental change on what's possible in a, in a local, you know, local farmer's market or at a local store. Uh, and it, it had to be changed at the state level uh, to make that possible. And so I think that uh, state policy is much more important than we often give attention to. You know, obviously federal policy uh, matters and, and is important, but uh, when we talk about these issues of, of quality of life, to really engage uh, state uh, policymakers as well as within our agencies. You know, a lot of the things that shape the day-to-day quality of life happens through uh, administrative rules in different agencies. It's kind of incumbent upon policymakers to think broadly about the, about the state as a whole. I think the other thing is that as a demographer, I like to focus on net migration. It's not the each individual, you know, for example, when we talk about, you know, younger adults leaving, there's all kinds of benefits to that, right? Uh, you know, you want people to, to go and get a better education, get new ideas, new experiences, meet new people. But the question is, is, is if you're consistently losing people, why is that? And, and that for all the reasons we've discussed of, of uh, infrastructure and tax base and being able to support businesses, um, that, that we don't want to consistently lose people. And so when we look at that net balance, uh, that that's what I'm p- very you know, particularly interested in. So you know, why is it that some places are so attractive to younger adults and other places seem to be, you know, or are losing them. Um, and we need to understand that better. Same thing when we talk about retirement, you know, that the, that the southern region, uh, we have a lot of people moving to the south. And that's not, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times when I say that, people say, well, yeah, retire east of Florida. Well, to a lot of other places uh, around the south. Why is it less so in particular places within Mississippi. Um, I, I think, for example, if we look at uh, the needs of, of youth, you know, children and youth, and we look at the needs of, of uh, our seniors, our elderly, and we think about what would make more livable uh, communities, more livable spaces for those two extremes in our population, age extremes, and then say, what are the state policies that can make a difference I think we could fundamentally change these, these uh, population numbers. That's the end of the first part of my conversation with Dr. John Green. Please join us for part two, where we talk about the 2020 census and its importance in Mississippi. Our editor for this episode of The Guidepost is Courtney Moncure. The show is produced by Todd Stoffer. You can learn more about our podcast and subscribe by visiting winterinstitute.org slash podcast. For all my colleagues at the William Winter Institute, I'm Jake McGraw. Thank you for listening.